Hi, I'm Patrick Palm, CEO and founder of Favro, and this is the Learn From Leaders podcast. The background to these interviews is that Favro clients are some of the most innovative and agile businesses out there. And it's used for collaborative planning by marketing teams, by product teams, HR, management teams. And what this means is that we get to know some truly inspiring people. So what we do in this podcast is that I invite them here for conversation about something where they are true leaders. So we can all learn from it. Let's go. And we are live with Tommy Palmer. And I guess the absolute first thing I have to say today then is that we're actually not related, even though we both have an amazing family name. Now, I think many of you already know Tommy as the founder and CEO of Resolution Games. And Tommy, would it be safe to say that you're one of, or maybe even the most successful VR studio, or how would you describe it from that point of view? I think Resolution Games is uh, absolutely in the top of the looking at the number of games that we have out and, and the ratings of, of those. I don't even know anymore. Maybe 15 different titles we have across platforms. Yeah, I for sure know when I'm talking to some of your investors that they are very proud about the commercial success because obviously for you know many years, there was a lot of conversations around can there be commercial success in the VR space? And, and I think there are many, many success stories today, but you have definitely been a trailblazer kind of leading the way. But we're going to get back more into that and the whole story of scaling your amazing studio. But let's just uh, go back a little bit in time. What's the backstory? The kind of whole story leading, you know, you into game development and you know, into VR, into starting the studio. I think for the ones who don't know you, that would be very interesting. Sure. So I um, always been a super big fan of uh, computers in general. I'm a programmer from as early as I possibly could. I, I uh, started uh, with Commodore 64. One of my our, our uh, co-founders and CTO, Martin, uh, we grew up in the same neighborhood in north of Stockholm. And uh, we made games together in the mid-80s. So we really uh, loved developing things back then, uh, didn't necessarily need to be games, but games was always so great for just being able to be very innovative. If you make a word processor, you have to make the absolute best. But if you make a game, it just has to be unique and something new. So it's really great for creativity and entrepreneurship. I tried the first VR experience back in uh, 1992, an arcade machine with a game called Darcy Till Nightmare, I think. Virtuality, the arcade machine was called. And I was blown away. You put this headset on and you were in the game world. And it was very, very low frame rate and um, low resolution. But I was sure that this was the way game was going. Seeing games back in the 80s and understanding how it would progress from these very abstract cubes. <laughs> I think it was, for me at least, very clear that it was going to be more like interactive movies in the future. And now we're finally here and, and it's super fun to be able to really work on the creative side of game development and being able to do a lot of R&D at the same time as you have products that consumers are actually willing to pay for. We've both been around for a long time. I think the absolute first time I met you in the game industry, I think you were at a place called uh, Jadestone. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's my first game company I started straight out of school. All right, cool. And um, just a little bit on the story, like from there to the origin story of Resolution Games. 
Yeah, so I, I uh, studied computer science at the Royal Institute of Technology here in Stockholm, and um, I had a good opportunity to start a company, and, I, and I've been uh, studying, I've been taking course about entrepreneurship, so I, I felt this was the perfect opportunity back in the 90s, and I didn't finish my studies. I got in contact with Martin, who I knew since a long time, and said I, I really would need somebody who, who knows what to do on the programming side, join me, and we started that company around primarily uh, server-side, client-server games. The idea of connecting people through the internet was extremely exciting. And these uh, dynamic web services was something that was starting to happen. So I did that for 10 years. And then I started another company and I sold that company to King. And eventually I felt at King that I wanted to do something new again. And I saw VR headset we bought the DK1, the development kit for Oculus, as that came out uh, to, to try it. And then eventually I saw the Samsung Gear VR, which was VR based on a mobile phone. And I realized that was a really great opportunity for me and Martin, a few people I knew from old days who were very good at optimizing for low-end uh, performance to really make content that I knew these big hardware companies were going to need. So that's kind of where we started in uh, 2015. Or it was the end of 2014, we saw that Samsung Gear VR, and then we started the company just uh, like on the 4th of January or something, uh, as it came out of the Christmas holidays. I'm going to ask you a question that I typically ask people I interview for a job position. I'm always super curious about interesting crossroads in life. And, and I always ask about the thought process when at that crossroad. And, and I kind of want to go back to this point, because if I look at timeline from when I met you the first time at the game conference and you were based on uh, to this point when you started, there's a lot of stuff happening there. And I, I think it's safe to say that I could, from the, say, the outside, observe your kind of name being definitely a bit of a, a rising star. You did a lot of things in the industry that made a lot of people know who you were and basically being a star, you know, from Sweden. So when you then, you know, make this step to start the studio, per definition, you would have many options and you pick one of the ones, which I would argue at the time would seem like one of the riskier ones, like VR studio. And of course, it makes a bit of sense with your whole backstory when you said that you had this experience so far way back. And maybe that was the reason. But just since you did study some entrepreneurship, you have this situation with many choices and you did go for one that at least at the time would seem like a risky one. Or maybe I'm just seeing the situation entirely wrong. But I would love to hear more about just how you were thinking at that time. Well, as an entrepreneur, I actually think that it's uh, way more risk involved in going for a market that's already kind of mature. It's harder to break in to something when there is lower margins and it's very competitive. So it's always good to go for kind of these uh, blue ocean scenarios where it's still a rising thing. You need to bet on the right horse, of course. But I was always very, very confident that VR and eventually AR is going to be really mind-blowing technology that's going to be important for humankind. But the only thing that was a large risk, of course, is the timing. I clearly admit that I started with mobile games way too early, like in the end of the 90s, where it took more than 10 years before there was a viable market. But from that, I also learned and brought with me that you can still make money by working with companies who are good at making money on hardware because they need software to demonstrate a lot of the things that they're doing. So there is good business to business opportunity there. And they don't really care about the end results. So many times you get to keep that which is a great opportunity to get somebody else to fund your R&D. And if it's very successful and consumers like it, you get a double whammy and sort of you get paid in the development and then you own the result and you can sell that over and over again. That was basically um, an entrepreneurship uh, class right there. <laughs> 
Cool. So let's move to this chapter of going from starting resolution to the point when you had business success and you could even start considering scaling this to many more, you know, games in production. We started, um, and uh, as I said, I came out of King and I was financially independent to a degree where I felt like as long as it's uh, one team, I can easily fund this myself and we can do whatever we want. But very quickly, I was approached by a lot of VCs at that point, and a lot of them wanted to be involved and made very good cases why it would be better to have them on board. So we met with uh, Google Venture, uh, as they were called at that point, I called GV today. And we met with Corianda and especially some very, very good individuals, Daniel Blomqvist, who is still on our board, who I really liked. He made a great impression on me back when I was at King. That's one more thing we share. We both got Trend and we both got Daniel on our board. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. It's not only the family name we share. <laughs> no, exactly. Stockholm is a very small place. But anyhow, I went from this original idea of like, let's take it easy. Let's be a, a team of, of seniors that we know saying like, hey, if I have the founder of Google Ventures as a personal ally who I can just pick up the phone call and, and talk to, and he was over in San Francisco or in the Bay Area. So he had kind of his hand on the pulse there. And I realized very quickly that that'd be a, a much more inspiring adventure to do. I already have been doing game development for quite some time. So I feel confident magic happens outside your comfort zone. And this felt exciting and, and fun. And it was really great to have uh, these good companies as a backer and you get a lot of PR from it. And that helps uh, accelerating process. So we raised uh, $6 million back in uh, mid-2015, but we were still a very small team. That's five people. And we stayed very small for a long time because we said to all the investors, hey, this is going to take time. Don't invest in us unless you have a fund that can live long enough. I don't want to do any prediction on how long VR hardware is going to take because I'm, I'm not a hardware person. I'm a software person. But I can tell you I'm going to be able to be around for a really long time and accelerate growth. That's what it's about. So you said you were around five people there in the beginning. Where did you find those guys? What was the next step in the expansion of the team? So that kind of segues us very nicely into the topic here, right? I knew from my early days of starting game studios that it's a very difficult thing to go from one team to two teams. So I wanted to do that as soon as possible, basically. And the first five people I got from mainly my old network this is people I really liked working with from my early days at Jadestone. I made a, a promise not to recruit from King to um, the CEO there as I really liked him and he likes me. So I didn't feel that was a problem to not recruit from them and just bring people I enjoyed working with like Martin and Gustav and a couple of these guys that we have almost 20 year history of uh, making games together. So I got them in and we worked on the first game. But as soon as possible, I tried to make sure that the first people in were multi-talented people who could do several things. So you have this potential of working with at least one and a half thing from the get-go and as soon as possible, two projects. And from there, I don't think it's very hard to scale up to three, four, five. I simplified that a little bit because it can be quite difficult depending on the size of the projects. And typically you don't really know that. So you work with externals and then all of a sudden you get a project that's pretty large and then you have to kind of shift people around. And when it comes to game development, I really believe that it's like a, having a rock band. The more time you work with each other, the better you're going to be at producing great results. 
it is risky shifting people around. But I also thoroughly enjoy working with uh, people who are straight out of school or extremely hungry, very, very good at what they're doing. I think you and me, Patrick, talked about this before. I had almost 50 or 60 master thesis students from KTH going through my uh, companies. And quite often I handpicked them myself and I work closely with them. Less now at almost 200 people when it was a little bit slower and I could actually be more involved and talk about like what aspects of R&D I was really interested in and how we could push the envelope and do new things that would be really interesting. And a couple of times we got them like uh, they won the award for best master thesis project and, and stuff like that. That is really cool. And I think it's also relatively unusual. I think most entrepreneurs in tech think that taking on those kind of students is actually something you do when you're bigger. But you basically flip that. You're basically arguing that when I could spend some time with them, it was better than when I cannot. And I think that's very interesting. And obviously it worked out. So congrats on the results. And hopefully this inspires more tech entrepreneurs to do the same. I want to tell a short story about I've been doing this for quite some time at Jadestone that I recruited a master's thesis student. I had booked an interview with somebody who, who saw me a lecture at the KTH, Royal Institute of Technology, and he came over and I opened the door. My brain going, like, okay, this is not going to be long because it was like super, super beefed up and he looked like a, a bouncer, basically. And he is now my long-term friend and the guy who I started games with. And it didn't take me long speaking to him to realize like, oh my God, this is going to be awesome. We're going to work together. And we walked out to that meeting, me and the CTO of JSON. And I told him from like the last line of uh, Casablanca, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And it was so correct. He's still one of my best friends, Alexander. Once you work 10 years or so, your pace slows down a little bit. Naturally, by you just bang your head into the wall so many times. So it's really nice to work with somebody who is super, super young and hungry and energetic. And that brings back, like Alexander would like ping me at 10 o'clock in the evening. So like, all right, are you awake? Let's get to it. Like, let's start together. And that was very nice. So instead of watching TV when you're tired, you go back to your computer and you go in. It's interesting that you say that. I read a study that was done by um, top tier VCs and it basically concluded that having like just the right mix between kind of junior, very driven talent and senior and let's say wise talent is a great combo. And you see that in a lot of unicorns. So with that then, so let's move into the next chapter then. So we have this business success. We raised more money. I mean, we already know that today. Uh, how many people are you today? Uh, well, I think we're 160 plus and we have another 30 coming in after the vacation. Okay, so almost 200 there. I know there's a bit of a jump there, you know, going from that early success, going from one team to multiple teams. And then you scaled from, I think it was two products in development at the same time to now it's like 10 plus products in, the, in development at the same time. That, that's quite a leap. So was it the same principles that you used to scale this level? Or was some of your old solutions, your new problems? What happened in this next phase? Well, I actually think that the tricky thing is not to scale up to more projects, is to not scale up to more projects than you can handle. And this is something that I am struggling with my whole life. You have new ideas, you want to go pursue that thing. And obviously, like successful entrepreneurs focus and do one thing really good. I think it can scale up to multiple things, but they need to be multiple along the same line. And you need to make sure that they can run on their own merits that you can step away. So you're not the bottleneck all the time. Some of these 10 projects are very small and just driven by that very, very small, tight group that knows what they're doing and, and uh, are able to make their own decision. 
one of the key things here is that there's a lot of trust from management to the people who are actually doing the work. And one part of that success is that they clearly understand that they're not making the games for us, for their boss. They're making it for the consumers. And to put that consumer hat on, go in and test your product and see like, this good? Or giving it to your relative, having them test it for the first time and see like, oh, what's going on? It's a very clear thing that almost everybody understands. So simplifying that process, I think it's a key to my success. I really trust people and people tend to step up and really use that trust in a, in a fantastic way. And it's also been very helpful during the pandemic. If you had a, a very controlled environment, now you can't have that anymore. And I think a lot of business leaders probably shocked to see that, hey, it worked quite well. People actually use that extra level of responsibility to benefit. Well, that's a good segue to my next question. Basically, what you're referring to is more autonomous you know, alignment. And this is, of course, you know, what you know, I'm all about. I mean, you know, what, what favor is all about. But it requires the right leader. I had a podcast uh, recently where we uh, had a theme that not all producers are cut from the same cloth. So we kind of talked about different kinds of producers, but I think it's the same thing with CEOs. It's not all CEOs are cut from the same cloth. And I think it's safe to say that you know, you're one of our industry's great visionaries. So do you solve your company organization challenge by simply being all kind of different CEOs or have you found a way to delegate certain things and surround yourself with leaders? And basically, how do you do that? How do you actually organize company leadership from like your personal perspective? I think one thing that helps a lot is that I thoroughly understand the development process of games. I've, I've been in almost all the roles myself, I've been a programmer, even dabbled on the graphic side. I've done a lot of game design and level design. So I understand some of the challenges involved and I try to help people where I see, okay, here's a ball dropped. In that case, you need to step in and say, hey, it looks like the team needs to be complemented with this type of, I think that that would really be helpful. But at the same time, you also need to allow people to make their own mistakes. That's how you learn effectively about your profession in the best possible way, right? So, so that is always very tricky line to thread. I am not a very controlling CEO. I see myself as a creative engineer. I understand the development part of this and I'm good at seeing those problems. And often I feel like that's one of the bottlenecks. Games is beautiful collaboration project, like a concert or, or a classical music where you have all these different fields need to play in harmony with each other for a great result. And I am really trying to also be very good at understanding art side and music side and everything else. But I am primarily an engineer in my heart. So I think us as an organization, it's better than that. But I, at least I know my kind of blind sides there. So I try to work with Are you familiar with uh, something called the Dunbar's number? No. It's um, in organizational theory, you know, we, the first uh, group size is the classic, you know, seven plus minus two people. And that's a very good size for making decisions and being innovative and being creative, which is if I go back to what you said earlier, you know, when you need to go from that group to several groups, it's actually a hard challenge. So you want to make sure you really tackle that one because you're going outside of that and you, you need to now suddenly have a group of groups. But the next level is Dunbar's number, which is roughly 200, 220 people. It's not a defined number, but what it means that it's the biggest number of people that you feel like you know. And it's this whole conversation around, are we in this very connected world actually expanding that number? So that number is, let's say, coming closer to 300. And then there's strong arguments against that. 
my point is this, as an organization, you're getting a little bit close here now to the, the 200 and, and above. And uh, some companies in the world, they have chosen to actually make that like the organization unit. So, you know, when you get close to that, you need to start thinking again. Before you had to think about, okay, what constitutes a squad or a cell or a team or whatever you want to call it. But now you need to think about what constitutes one of those, let's say, tribes. I'm quite sure that with the success that's going to come with the games you have now in production, there might be a fundraise again, there might be even more people, and then you're going to get closer to the 300, 400, you know, and so forth. Any thoughts you want to share around the plan for getting like a 400 team organized? Yeah, that's a very good point. And that's something at this scale that we're at, definitely I'm thinking about those things. We have a very talented COO whose role it is to look at the, the organization and, and make sure that there is enough managers somebody has the time to listen to what it is that is pain point for the production side we also already were three different so we have a u.s organization and a team in lynn shopping and one in stockholm but we're also looking at like demio has been kind of a runaway success for us and that team is way bigger than everything else so would that make sense to be its own entity or we uh, in november last year we announced that we now have an ar division who is looking specifically at the ar which is a different field but share a lot of technology with uh, vr but it's so far, it's not clear cut exactly where you want to draw these lines. A lot of the things that we do in AR is Demio related and a lot of things we do in VR is related to something else. So I think this is one of the things you need to have a very good like fingertip feel on, on when it's time to make a change and always have that attitude of change is a part of the DNA of a successful company. So you need to constantly embrace that and not get people used to it. It works in a certain way. It sounds like you already have a um, plan for that. And, you know, my experience is that very often good leaders have a natural kind of feel for these kind of things uh, without necessarily having read all the theory. And some of the people that have read all the theory are not necessarily the ones who's necessarily making, you know, the best decisions from a leadership perspective. Well, I must say I'm... I'm uh... I'm an entrepreneur. I've started five different organizations around the video game. And this is by far the largest one at this point. Uh, you know, I sold my last company to King and King grew from about 80 people or so. And we started our conversation to 3000 when I left. I've seen that growth, but I wasn't in the driving seat back then. I think as a CEO, you must always also, uh, depending on what you want to do, but be ready to step away if you're not the right person anymore for a company that is vastly different from the one that you started and was a really good founder. You have to listen to the voices around you. And, and I think so far I'm popular in the board, so I'm sticking around for a while. Yeah, but I mean, it's a very interesting comment that you're making. And I find that especially VCs are discussing that quite a lot. It's like, what's like the leadership kind of succession and progression. You know, my opinion is that it's very connected to your leadership style. I mean, if you are a very controlling person, you're also going to be very tied to the certain to the phase when your controlling abilities will be the best. And when you get outside of that, well, maybe someone else will be better. And, you know, as you said yourself, you're not really that controlling person. Again, I've seen from the outside, and you have also talked a little bit about that here, that you're good at surrounding yourself with talent. I would put my bet on that we're having this conversation again in this podcast one year from now and then you are 400 people. And um, you always talk about the killer app that makes something become something. 
if you go back to when you started, you know, resolution, obviously uh, you had those advantages of uh, the hardware manufacturers, you know, had some interest and that could be a good business opportunity. But I think now we are in this position where there is that kind of trailblazing, you know, there's that leading the way. And there's a lot of questions I have purposely not asked today because I know you can probably not answer them. But one of the things we're, of course, all very curious about is what's coming next on the hardware front, what kind of games from resolution can we, you know, can we play on those, et cetera. But I'm not going to ask you that because you're not going to be able to answer or you're not allowed to answer, I guess. But being in your seat must be really cool to constantly be the one that everyone who has some cool new hardware wants to talk to to make sure that they can prove their hardware. Yeah, it's a great position to be in. And and it's really cool that you can be up in little Sweden and really play on, on a global scale of uh, having the biggest companies in the world contacting you and wanting to work with you and your team. So it's super fun. And one thing I do want to say about hardware, I think one thing that was clear to us when we started Resolution was that a lot of the things that drives VR and AR is the same technology. I look at it as two things. It's a heads-up display that can give you information wherever you are without you having to look down into another device. And the other thing is that it's using cameras to have a CPU aware of your surrounding and the context you're in. And those are two rather different, but, but very, very powerful things. So I kind of see this as the next very logic paradigm shift for computing in general. It went from mainframes to personal computers to smartphones. But still, as we see with smartphones today, people look down, you know, they're not there with their kids because they are now sending this picture to their kid's grandmother and missing this opportunity. And I think that's one of the things that there is a promise here of uh, having all that power and functionality of the small phone even closer to your everyday situation. I work primarily with games, but the cool thing here is that it's game technology as a foundation for any service you want to do on VR and AR. And that's why Unity and Unreal is in such a fantastically interesting position. All the big companies are now looking at how, how do we integrate this into our business? How do we get on board in Web 3.0 or the metaverse? So it's very, very promising frontier. I think that's a very good wrap up. We're out of time. And um, I can only say that uh, I'm not as in front line as you are in terms of having that um, connection inbound in interest. But at least we have, you know, many of the kind of customers that uh, many of the companies that you've mentioned, the ones that are in forefront as, as clients. So we, we at least have the, the privilege of favor to have a conversation with them. And hopefully I can invite a few more of them into this podcast and we can pick up the thread here from what you said and bring it into the next podcast. That would be great. And your technology is powering our project development. So that's uh, super fun to uh, have this conversation. When someone can scale without breaking the company and they're using favor, we are super happy. Then we've done something right. So super thanks for having you. Thanks for um, all of you listening. Please like, share this with others and I'll see you in the next one. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I certainly did. If you want to elevate yourself as a modern leader and help your teams become even more successful, then check out Favor Academy at favro.com. They will find podcasts, webinars, articles, all free of charge. Check it out.